Welcome to the Mediate.com podcast with Veronica Kramer. Well, hey there, and thanks for joining me for another great episode of the podcast. I am so excited because today we're going to talk all about procedural justice and data collection in court-connected mediation. And I'm so excited for today's guest. Today's guest is Nancy Welsh. And by way of background, Nancy is the Frank W. Elliott Jr. University Professor, Professor of Law and Director of the Dispute Resolution Program at Texas A&M University School of Law. In 2016 to 2017, she was the chair of the ABA section of Dispute Resolution. Nancy is a leading scholar and teacher of Dispute Resolution and Procedural Law. She examines negotiation, mediation, arbitration, judicial settlement, and dispute resolution in U.S. and international contexts, focusing on self-determination, procedural justice, due process, and institutionalization dynamics. Nancy has written more than 60 articles and chapters that have appeared in law reviews, professional publications, and books, and is co-author of Dispute Resolution and Lawyers, 5th edition. In 2006, she conducted research in the Netherlands as a Fulbright Scholar and taught at Tilburg University. In 2016, she was named a Visiting Scholar of the Program on Negotiation at Harvard Law School and a Visiting Fellow of the Institute for Advanced Study at Indiana University Bloomington. She has advised state legislators and federal and state agencies and courts regarding the institutionalization of dispute resolution conducted empirical research, convened roundtables and symposia on various dispute resolution topics, and served as a mediator, facilitator, and arbitrator. Nancy presents nationally and internationally, conducts trainings, and teaches Texas A&M's unique required course for 1Ls, ADR survey, as well as civil procedure, mediation, and dispute system design seminar. So with that, Nancy, Welcome to the Mediate.com podcast, and thanks for coming on the show. Thanks very much, Veronica. I appreciate it. Yeah, so I am so excited for today's episode, and I'm so excited to talk about procedural justice and data collection and court-connected mediation. I should share, um, I am a court-connected mediation alum, so I previously mediated for two different court-connected mediation programs. I imagine many listeners of the podcast either currently mediate for court-connected mediation programs or have mediated in the past for those programs. So I think what we're talking about today are just very relevant, very important information. So I'm so excited to talk about it. And so I thought maybe we could kick things off with the topic of procedural justice. And I know before we hit record, we were chit-chatting a little bit. And so I want to share, you know, for our listeners, um, reading the articles that you were able to share with me. And, and thank you so much for sharing those with me, by the way. But that was really the first time that I sort of sat down and considered mediation from a procedural justice angle. You know, when I think about mediation, buzzwords that typically come to mind are like access to justice. But I hadn't really considered the procedural justice element. And so I'm really curious to hear from you and interested to learn. I mean, can you tell us what is what does procedural justice mean from a mediation standpoint? 
So let me start. So thank you very much. And it's really interesting to me to learn that this was something that you were not familiar with previously, because I think as I begin to describe it, you're going to think, oh, well, actually, these aspects of mediation, yeah, they are part of procedural justice. So let me let me begin by providing a little bit of background regarding procedural justice. And then what I will do is apply it to mediation. Okay, so this concept of procedural justice has been around for a pretty long time. There's a pretty deep um, uh, social and psychological literature um, and empirical research that's been done about procedural justice. Most of that research uh, historically has been done in connection with adjudication trials, for example. Interestingly, though, also some of it has been done within the workplace, uh, managerial decision making. So what what did this research find or what, what did they find? Um, first of all, they found that there were certain procedural characteristics that made it more likely that people involved in a decision-making or dispute resolution process made it more likely that they would find the process to be fair. That was true if they felt that they had the opportunity to really say what was important to them, if they had what's called voice if uh, they perceived that the decision maker or the authority was somebody who really um, considered what they had to say. Whereas they didn't just want to have an opportunity to speak, they wanted to know that somebody was listening. Uh, third, uh, that the process was one that felt like a neutral forum where they were being treated in an even-handed way, both in terms of, of psychological treatment, but also in terms of the norms that were being used for decision-making. There weren't different norms being applied to them. And then fourth, that they were treated in a respectful and dignified way. If a procedure included these characteristics, these elements, then it made it much more likely that somebody would view the procedure as fair. And, you know, I will just say in my um, civil procedure class at the beginning of the, you know, first semester, first year law school, one of the things I'll ask my students is to imagine a terrible thing, which is that they have been accused of an honor code violation. That's a terrible thing to imagine. And then I ask them, okay, so now you're going before the decision maker. What was important to you in terms of the that is used. And inevitably, they talk about how important it will be to them that they get a chance to be heard, that they are heard by somebody who treats them with dignity, etc. It's all of the different elements. In some ways, it's just natural that these are things we care about. All right, fine. But so what? So it's a nice procedure. So what? what why does that matter? It turns out that if a procedure includes these characteristics, and if people perceive it as a fair procedure, they're more likely to find the outcome to be fair, even if it's not what they had hoped for. Think about how important that is. Think about our courts and how frequently one person is getting an outcome they don't want. It's important that they perceive that that outcome, even though it's not what they want, that it's fair, that they are then more likely to comply with it, and also that they perceive the institution that's providing this process as legitimate. All of those things are really important. So now let's apply that to mediation. Um, I, 
I've written a fair amount about procedural justice and mediation, as you pointed out. And um, it is extremely important that the mediator manage the process in a way that makes it clear that both of the parties are getting a chance to be, to speak, to have voice. That the mediator is reflecting back what the mediator has heard so that those parties then know that somebody is providing sincere consideration, trustworthy consideration of what they had to say. Their words aren't just going into a black hole. That the mediator then, if the mediator begins to, for example, reality test with the parties, which happens pretty frequently, um, that the mediator is doing that in a way that makes it clear that the norms that the mediator is applying and the way the mediator is speaking with the parties is being done in an even-handed way, in a neutral way, and also that the mediator is treating the parties with dignity, with respect. Um, so is it possible for a mediation to include all of those elements? Oh yeah, I absolutely think it is possible for mediation to include those elements. Is it also possible for something called mediation not to include those elements? Yeah, I think that's possible too. And I think that's problematic. Yeah, that's very interesting. And, you know, as you were sharing that, it makes me think that, I mean, you're right, though, you know, the concept of procedural justice, maybe I had never thought of it that way in terms of mediation. It really does seem to track with what's in, for example, the ABA model standards of conduct for mediators or what you know many of us may have learned in our basic mediation trainings. I mean, you mentioned the example of, um, how did you phrase it, trustworthy consideration. I mean, that's one of the things that mediators do throughout mediation is constantly summarizing back, reflecting back to each participant to make sure that you understand and to communicate actually to the participants that you are understanding. Yep. So that's, that's really interesting. And so, you know, can you talk a little bit more? Because I know part of um, one of the articles that, that uh, you shared that I was reading was talking about just the aspect of self-determination. Yeah. I mean, how does that, because that's something different, like when you compare, you know, procedural justice, when you're looking at the litigated case, mm -hmm. you know, that's one part of mediation that's different, that self-determination aspect. So how does that factor in to the procedural justice aspect? Because I'm thinking about, right. for example, you know, so in a mediation, mediators have the option to do things like a joint session or caucus only. And sometimes parties will come in giving their preferences as to what the mediation looks like and who's doing the talking, the parties themselves versus the attorney. How does that factor into procedural justice? So um, let me, um, uh, great question. <laughs> let me back up a little bit. I want to mention, uh, because you referenced the model standards of conduct for mediators, uh, and actually procedural fairness or procedural justice, I don't remember which term they use, um, is actually part of one of those standards. As I recall, it's standard six regarding quality of process. Um, so, you know, this concept is specifically referenced in our ethical standards, which I think is, is interesting. Um, 
And then the connection between procedural fairness and self-determination. Um, I promise I will get to your, your specific question regarding caucus, but I'm going to get there through a slightly circuitous route, okay? Right. So I began um, my uh, kind of scholarship, my, my kind of record of scholarship, by looking first at the question of self-determination. Because I was concerned, um, this was when I was still um, directing a dispute resolution program, but had played a big role in institutionalizing mediation in the courts in Minnesota. I became concerned that the mediation process as it was being institutionalized was not one that really emphasized the opportunity for the parties to have voice and to come to their own creative solutions, but instead was morphing into a process in which the parties instead were being told by the mediators um, what their real options were um, and about the strengths and weaknesses of their cases. And I worried that that was moving in on and reducing the amount of self-determination that parties were experiencing in mediation. Okay, so I first wrote about the potential for directive evaluative mediation um, to undermine this fundamental promise, right, of self-determination. One of the things I realized was that as mediation was being institutionalized in the courts, the courts are not really about self-determination. You know, the courts are there in order to provide an answer, an outcome when the parties themselves can't work it out, right? So, so self-determination is sort of a foreign transplant into the courts. So that, that's why then I started looking at procedural fairness because I actually thought that if a process was managed in a procedurally fair way, it made it more likely that parties would exercise some meaningful degree of self-determination. Why? Because one of the key elements of a procedurally fair process is voice. If the parties have a chance to talk about what has happened to them, what's important to them, what their goals are, what their underlying interests are, that's all voice, right? And if that information is part of the mediation process right from the beginning, and if the mediators then really are reflecting back what they're hearing, well, now this information is more likely to be part of the process and part of the outcome. There's also some research that shows that if people um, feel that they are having an opportunity for voice and feel that they are heard and that the decision maker, the, the, the other party, the authority figure really wants to understand them, it's more likely that their trust in that person and the process is going to go up. And if their trust goes up, they are likely to provide even more information. Well, again, think about self-determination. The more information that's out there, the more clues you have for different ways in which a dispute can be resolved. 
in a manner that is going to respond to what the parties really care about. And again, that all seems consistent to me with both procedural fairness and self-determination. So that's the connector that I saw between the two of these. There's also, um, there's also some research that's been done by Lisa Amsler and her colleagues um, in connection with transformative mediation, which actually found that um, parties in that type of mediation, um, parties actually cared more about being heard by receiving trustworthy consideration and respectful treatment by the other party. They cared about that even more than they cared about receiving that from the mediator, which is also really intriguing and leads then to me finally getting to the specific question you asked, which is about caucus. Because if that's what people really, really, really care about, then that just never happens if you're always <laughs> in caucus, <laughs> right? Um, it just never happens. Um, and so that's a concern I have about, about um, I will say, exclusive use of caucus. And it's important that I'm saying exclusive use of caucus. Um, yeah, I can see that you're- you Yeah, 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 no, no, it's okay. Yeah. That makes sense. And I was just gonna follow up. So I was curious in, in the research that you've, that you've seen. So you talk about the importance of, you know, a party wants to feel like they've been heard by the other party. Yeah. So I guess my follow-up was, um, does it does it have to be the other party? Or like, for example, with caucus, if the mediator is yeah. the one who's showing that they've yeah. heard, that they've understood, yeah. does that have the same? It doesn't. So here's what, here's, I, I cannot answer your question fully based on the research that's been okay. done. Okay. Um, what I can do is say a few things as a result of some research that's been done regarding particular mediation processes. So in the transformative model, um, where both the mediator and the other party are, you know, they're all in the same room, they never use caucus. In that kind of a mediation, it turns out that the parties seem to have cared more about being heard by the other party than they did about being heard by the mediator, right? But in mediations that I um, observed and where I then interviewed um, the parties, this is in the special ed mediation context, I did a research project where I interviewed the parents of um, the children who were being discussed in special ed mediation and also interviewed the um, school officials who participated in mediation. In that mediation process, they very much cared about whether they had been heard and understood by the mediator. And um, uh, this was a qualitative research project. Pretty frequently, when they talked about the setting in which they really had felt heard by the mediator, it was in caucus, right? That's interesting. Yeah. So, um, so is it possible? for parties to feel a meaningful degree of procedural fairness when caucus is used? Yes, absolutely it is. But, but, I, but I caution against the exclusive use of caucus because of that other research that exists that suggests that um, 
people really care about being heard by the other party. Now that does mean that they notice whether or not the other party is treating them with respect and whether the other party, it appears is really trying to hear what they have to say. And then, and then that speaking party will have the obligation to do the same thing, right? So this means that when they're in joint session, if you really want there to be some measure of procedural fairness, everyone needs to be ready to listen. Which is yeah, and <laughs> that makes sense. And, and that reminds me, I know one of the parts of your articles talked about, um, you know, something that mediators can do is really the, the pre-mediation caucus really to prepare parties yeah. uh, in order to kind of move that focus towards and really the teachable moment is just the importance of listening yep. you know listening to understand and yep. treating one another with respect and, yep. and yep. yeah that makes sense and i think you know and i think there's the potential for a mediator um to to in that pre-mediation caucus to talk about how you'll be together for, in joint session for a limited period of time here's the reason i'm doing it here's the way in which um, it, it will be most beneficial to both parties if you are able to do the following. Listen, be respectful. Here are things that would really hurt it. You know? <laughs> um, but I think letting people know that you aren't necessarily going to stay in joint session forever. But here are the really good things that could come from being in joint session. Um, and here are then the obligations that each side has um, to participate in a way that will really make it fruitful. Well, hey, Nancy, that is all really interesting. And so, you know, I really wanted to just follow up on this concept of voice that you were talking about before. And so I'm curious, because I'm just reflecting back on my own mediations. And, you know, when I, when I reflect back, I can recall, you know, I've had mediations where some parties were much more comfortable in sharing their voice during mediations than others. Um, whether that was through counsel, whether they were self-represented and sharing their voice directly. So for mediators, I mean, is there anything beyond what we've already talked about with the pre-mediation caucus? Is there anything else that mediators can do to really help support parties in sharing their voice in mediation? Yeah. So um, let me mention a couple of things. First of all, First, I just want to say, um, I also have mediated, and usually I have found that it's not the part a party who is saying that they don't want joint session. Instead, it's the lawyer saying they don't want joint session. Um, and that's a different issue than the one you and I are now talking about. And, and I will just say that when I've talked with lawyers beforehand, I've let them know, that here's why I use joint session. Here's what we can all do in order to make it more productive, blah, blah, blah. Happy to talk about that more, but that's not your really your question. Um, so uh, yeah, so there is actually there definitely is research also that shows that there are some people, um, particularly people who are feeling marginalized or not feeling part of the relevant group, right? Um, who are hesitant to share voice. Um, they may even actually have found that when they have shared their voice in the past, it has come back to haunt them. So you know they have some good reasons. Uh, 
on occasion at least, um, to not really want to take advantage of voice. Um, so the pre-mediation caucusing is a, an important piece. Another that we all can be part of is encouraging um, more people of color, more people who well, we would tend to describe as being part of marginalized groups to be part of the mediator pool and not just part of the mediator pool and getting trained, but actually getting selected. Um, and so different organizations um, are, are being more creative uh, in finding good ways in order to increase the likelihood that mediators will be selected uh, and used as mediators because there's research demonstrating um, that people notice if no one else in the room is from the same group that they are. Um, another thing that uh, has I think been um, shown to be helpful is when we as mediators use reflective listening effectively um, and in a way model that then for others in the room. Because there's also research demonstrating that particularly if you view yourself as being a, a more dominant part of the group, you tend not to be very good at reflective listening. <laughs> you don't have to listen to other people. You, they have to listen to you. Um, so us modeling that, I think, also makes a difference. And then there's also some really interesting research that's been done that suggests that um, online tools could be useful. Um, uh, for example, prior to mediation, um, parties being using an online tool in, a, in order to help them prepare for what they want to be sure is covered during the course of the mediation. Um, I mean, that's intriguing in a whole lot of different ways. Yeah, that's interesting. And, you know, I mentioned at the outset of the episode that um, I previously did court connected mediation. And in one of those court connected mediation experiences, I actually did a little bit of asynchronous ODR. And it was interesting how, I mean, I thought the conversations were very productive. It seemed like ODR, like text-based asynchronous ODR gave participants that opportunity to sit and reflect on what they were going to say before they said it, and then also to sit and reflect on what the other participant had said. And I think it, it seems like and you'll have to tell me your thoughts here, but it seemed like part of it was just the different and difference in method of communication. You know, when you sit down and write something, I mean, you sit down and write an email, what do you do? You, you think you type it up and then you probably read it before you hit send versus when you were talking in the moment, you don't have that same opportunity to edit usually. But yeah, tell me, what are your, what are your no, thoughts? You're absolutely right about that. Um, now, of course, there are occasions when all of us have written an email <laughs> before we have uh, thought and edited, but, um, but you certainly have more of an opportunity to do that when you have typed it. And the other thing that I, I that, um, so I, I agree with everything you just said and also, the questions that you are being asked are not necessarily questions you thought about yourself, right? Right. So even, um, even the most basic question in our field, which is, can you help me understand why that's important to you? Which is getting at underlying interests, right? How often, how often do you ask yourself that question? 
Or how often does anyone, you know, you're talking with ask you that question? It's just, it just doesn't come up very often. And then to have to reflect um, and, under, and try to understand yourself well enough to know why you really care about something, why something really affects you in the way that it does, it, it, that requires something from you that you, you're not normally doing. You know, a long time ago, um, you mentioned that I was in the Netherlands um, on a Fulbright, which is true. Um, and uh, one of the things that um, the judiciary did uh, in the Netherlands in order to try to determine whether cases were appropriate for mediation was that they sent to the parties something that they called a self-test. And that self-test included questions like those we are talking about right now in order to get the parties to reflect on what really mattered to them. And one of the other questions that was asked in that self-test was, if you get a legal answer from us, the court, will that solve the problem? That's will, interesting. Will it go away? And, and I would bet that many people had not actually asked themselves that question. So it's both the, the opportunity to, um, to take your time in responding, and also being asked questions that you otherwise wouldn't have been asked. And you know, and and there are some online dispute resolution tools. Um, I can't remember their names right now, but um, there are some online dispute resolution tools that exist that ask um, participants a series, ask the participants to respond to a series of questions. And then I think the next question is, you know, is logically flows from the answer. Um, uh, and then that information um, is either provided just to the mediator or perhaps is also provided to the other side. But it's, it's the questions that are asked too that um, I think can lead to insights and more productive voice. Yeah, absolutely. And I always think, you know, the, the benefit of mediation too is just um, an opportunity for parties to have that shift in awareness. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like from what you're saying that, you know, strategic use of ODR can really help support that. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, we tend, when we think about ODR, I think we sometimes tend to think of it just in terms of video mediation. Um, uh, and also potentially the part of it that represents the interaction between the two parties facilitated by the, um, uh, by the um, technology and by the mediator, but also in many of these ODR processes includes something um, that occurs before the parties begin to interact, which is this opportunity to help the parties prepare for the interaction. And, you know, and I think we don't necessarily think enough about that, that first stage that can be available in an ODR process and the ways in which that actually could be useful um, even as a, a preparation, a supplement to in-person dispute resolution processes. Yeah, yeah. All right, so let's switch gears a little bit and now let's talk <laughs> about data collection yeah. in court-connected mediation. Yeah. So 
tell me a little bit about what sort of data do you think should be collected? So here's the, <laughs> well, let me say, the reason I even started thinking about this was because I teach this ADR survey, right? And yeah. one of the students came up to me afterwards and said, wow, it sounds like mediation is used a lot in the courts. How much is it actually used? Uh, how many cases that are actually handled? And I thought, I cannot answer this question because there is no data collected on this, which is kind of crazy. Um, so some of the basics. So how many would how many cases actually would be eligible for mediation of those cases that are eligible for mediation? How many are actually being referred to mediation of those cases that are being referred to mediation? How many mediations actually are being held? Um, and then of those mediations that are being held, do we want to know how many dispositions resulted from mediation? Yeah, we do. You know, it's, is that the only thing we should be looking at that, though? No. <laughs> um, we also should be getting information from the parties on their perceptions as a result of their participation in the mediation process. Did they think it was fair? Did they think they had an opportunity for voice? Did they feel that they were being treated in a respectful manner? All of those kinds of perception questions are also important. And then I also just want to say that... Um, I think that we also should be collecting um, information regarding demographics. Um, why am I saying this? Part of the reason that we know that in the criminal justice system, people of color receive different outcomes than people who are white is because data is collected and then analyzed in order to see whether there are demographic patterns that concern us. Um, we don't have that, that kind of demographic information on the civil litigation side. Um, and I think that, that would be helpful for us to have. Um, I also think, and this will really, there will be listeners who really don't like this. Um, I also think that um, if there is settlement, that there ought to be information provided to the court regarding what the settlement was. So what type of case was it and, and what was the settlement? Not so that then there will be reporting regarding what happened in individual cases. Confidentiality is important, but instead so that then that information could be aggregated so that the court would be able to say, for example, um, in this particular type of case, here's the range of settlements that we saw, and then here's the median, right? Um, uh, this kind of information has been collected by certain courts in the past in what they've called settlement logs. Um, and then those logs have been shared with parties in judicial settlement conferences, um, so that the parties can be more realistic about what sort of elements are likely to be produced in that court. Those settlement logs actually are the descendants, in a way, of, um, of other information like that that has existed for a long time, which are jury awards that for a long time um, courts had collected information regarding what juries awarded for a, a, you know, a lost finger, for broken teeth, for the death of a spouse, 
um, there have been these jury award books that um, provide information about what juries award in different judicial districts for a really long time. Lawyers then historically used that information to help them be realistic about what kind of settlement was possible. Um, these settlement logs are the descendants, really, of that jury award information. Yeah, and it, and it makes sense if you think about it, just kind of the, you know, being a proponent of data for for court-connected ADR, particularly mediation, because, you know, I don't know how many times I've heard a statistic that it's like a very small number of cases actually proceed and get their final disposition through trial, that instead, many, many, many cases are resolved in one way or another outside of a courtroom, and, you know, mediation is a very common process. So that makes sense. I mean, what do you think is the the impediment to having that sort of data now is it you know is it just a lack of awareness of the benefits of having this sort of data is it you know a lack of administrative support to compile like what do you think is the impediment for mediation programs so believe it or not i think that that second point that you raised um the uh, the challenge of uh, finding the funding <laughs> for administrative support in order to be able to enter uh, the data uh, in order to be able to track all this. I think that that is really significant and the courts don't really view their primary job uh, as being the provision of data. They view their primary job as resolving cases. Um, so that makes sense. Uh, and uh, in addition, they don't necessarily um, view their primary job as helping to facilitate settlements. It's deciding cases. So um, a little bit ago, I, um, I, with the help of my research assistants, um, looked at the annual reports from all 50 states. Um, I, think it, I forget which year. I think it was, I forget which year. Um, in the late, late, like 2017, 2018, 2019, right around there. Um, in order to see what kind of data was reported by each of the states regularly. The data that was most likely to be reported was simply how many cases did we receive and how many cases did we dispose of? <laughs> A period, it was like no differentiation on disposition. Um, uh, for those that differentiated on disposition, they were much more likely to report how many jury trials and how many bench trials they had, because that's what they view as being iconically associated with the courts, right? They're much less likely, very few um, were reporting on how many cases had resulted in a settlement, even even though you and I regularly say most cases settled, but do we actually know this? We don't actually know. We know most cases don't go to trial. That's what we know for sure. How many cases are resolved through default? How many cases are resolved through dispositive motions? How many cases are resolved simply because the plaintiff dismisses them but doesn't really settle the case? How many cases are resolved through negotiated settlement, through mediated settlement? I mean. We don't have good data on this. Now, I will say that the National Center for State Courts is really urging all of the state courts to collect uh, this kind of data. They actually reached out to the um, ABA's section of dispute resolution for some advice on what kind of data ought to be collected on ADR, which we were thrilled that they reached out to us on that. Um, and uh, they now have um, produced recommendations 
uh, regarding what data should be collected. And it does include data on ADR, skeletal, but still it's something. Uh, and that's much more than existed in the past. Um, the one other uh, challenge that the National Center has identified is that each state collects data differently. They have different definitions. And so the National Center is trying to make this more uniform so that the states can really learn from each other. Um, and then it turns out that many of the state courts use private vendors for case management. Uh, there really are a small number of those uh, case management vendors. And those case management vendors have indicated to the National Center for State Courts that they would be absolutely happy, it'd be great for them uh, if the state courts used more consistent um, data uh, or had them collect more consistent data and if that data included ADR. It's just that customizing it to every single state and customizing it to every single judicial district within a state, that's 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 not an economically viable product. Uh, so you know we'll see we'll see whether we end up going in that direction. Yeah, but I mean it sounds like it's it's in the works. Um, so what about you know so far we it's in the thinking <laughs> it's in the sure, thinking. <laughs> <laughs> well, so what about, you know, I, I know we've talked mainly about court connected mediation, but what about now with regards to, to data, but what about now with the private organizations or, um, you know, data on like arbitration awards? So thank you for asking that question. My focus has been court connected for sure. Um, but I, I, I want us to remember that private dispute resolution actually does not exist entirely separately from the public courts. And here's why I'm saying that, especially when I think about arbitration, one of the things that will be said about arbitration is that it produces awards that in a way are even more binding than trial awards. Here's why. Because the Federal Arbitration Act provides very few grounds for a court to vacate an arbitral award. And instead, courts under the Federal Arbitration Act in general are going to be required both to recognize and then enforce an arbitral award. But notice then that the courts are serving as the sort of guarantor of the enforceability of an arbitral award. It's only happening because they get to use our public courts. Well, it seems to me that if there's a chance uh, that the parties are going to be relying on our courts to enforce an arbitral award, they should first have opted in to some sort of a reporting system. The, the court's guarantee should be contingent on this information provision by, could be by the dispute resolution provider, could be one, by one of the parties. Um, but otherwise, otherwise the, the, our public courts are serving as enforcers with, without knowing anything. 
about what's going on in this private sector. That just doesn't seem right to me. They're giving, they're giving the guarantor guarantee away for nothing. Yeah, yeah, no, I feel like I feel like during this episode, I've definitely you know, we talk about shift in awareness of mediation. You've definitely helped me to have a shift in awareness. And yeah, I mean, this is uh, this is all like this is all stuff that we need to be thinking about as as a mediation community, right? Yeah. Um, so and I'm curious. I'm gonna interrupt you once. I can just, okay. you talk about access to justice. Yeah. And think about the way in which requiring this kind of reporting from consumer and employee arbitration, employment arbitration, I think has the potential to help with access to justice as well. Yeah, no, you're it's all like all full circle. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, no, 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 thank you. Thank you for adding that. Absolutely. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Well, you know, I was just going to say, I mean, if uh, this has been such a fantastic episode, like I said, I mean, if there are any listeners who want to learn more about your work, how can they do so? The easiest, so they're probably the two easiest ways. One is go to the Texas A&M uh, Law School website um, and, and look me up and you'll see under there that there are articles I've written. You could also go to our Aggie Dispute Resolution Program web, web page, um, which lets you know about different kinds of things that our dispute resolution programs involved in. And in fact, we are we have been ranked by US News as fourth in the nation among law schools uh, in terms of this dispute resolution area of expertise. The other, um, the other way would be to go to SSRN um, so you can even just Google SSRN Nancy Welsh, <laughs> and then that will take you to a page with, you know, different articles and chapters um, that you can peruse at your leisure. I would be delighted to have you read anything. For every, for every law professor, for any academic who writes these articles, the idea that anyone is reading them is just thrilling. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know what I can do is I can go ahead and put links in the show notes. So okay. for any listeners who want to check those out, it'll be Great. it'll can be convenient for them to do so. Great. Thank you very much, Veronica. And I have this has been delightful. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. Yeah, yeah, no, this is fantastic. I love doing these episodes because I feel like with each episode, I learn more and more and I continue to have these shifts in awareness on topics. So yeah, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. All right, friends. Well, that wraps up another great episode of the Mediate.com podcast. We'll talk to you next time. This podcast was brought to you by Mediate.com. For more information about Mediate.com's programs and content, please visit our website at www.mediate.com.